I, I just tell the team, I said, look, they're human beings like you and I. They're, they're feeding their families and their dreams and their vision plans that are private like you and I. If you make them look good, they'll always remember that. They'll always come back for more. And so they're like, oh. So like light bulbs are going on with my team. Welcome to the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast, where we uncover the stories behind successful machine shops and their owners. By interviewing current and former shop owners, we dig deep to unveil their secrets of success and the struggles and challenges they've overcome on their paths to building thriving shops. We aim to elevate how important the machining industry is and inspire others by highlighting why owning a shop can be a great vehicle to creating jobs, stimulating the economy, and creating wealth. Here's our host, former machine shop owner himself, Paul Van Meter. Hey, everybody. Welcome again to another episode of the Machine Shop Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Van Meter. And uh, as I always say, and it's genuinely true, I am pleased today to uh, share this interview with Nate Ankrum of Genuine Machine Products. So genuinely pleased to, 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 uh, to introduce Nate to you guys. This is a passionate guy who started on the machine shop floor at the age of 12 um, and has worked his way up uh, to be the president of Genuine Machine Products, where he's um, really pushing culture, pushing core values, pushing uh, to get rid of waste. Um, he's you know, clearly bringing in a really interesting perspective to, to improving business operations within a machine shop. Um, just incredibly knowledgeable guy with a deep passion for both the shop and the industry at large. So we get into all of those topics. Uh, I know you'll enjoy the episode. So uh, without further ado, let's go. Uh, let's talk with and learn from Nate. So welcome, Nate. I'm so glad to have you here on the show. Uh, you are the president of Genuine Machine Products, and we connected over LinkedIn. I don't know a, a couple months ago. I was just yeah. really inspired and interested by some of the things that you posted the things you shared about your team and your culture there. And I'm just like, I got to reach out to this guy. And so I'm super glad you're here and let's dig in. I'm humbled and honored. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, can we start by learning a little bit about Nate? What's your background, how you got into the machining business? Um, and then we'll, we'll segue into genuine machine products. Absolutely. So I'm um, third generation in manufacturing and my okay. grandfather worked for Cincinnati Millicron Back when uh, it was in the heyday, uh, Ohio was the mecca, and they were building a lot of machine tools. Uh, my father worked for Cincinnati Millicron, and then later went to work for a company called MDSI. That was essentially the first internet, uh, where the phone would go on the clip, and they would send the um, uh, send and receive the programs. And the, mm -hmm. back then, there were tape readers. Yeah. And the, uh, my father has uh, worked in various machine shops, and then he ended up becoming a general manager for one of them in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, family moved out here from the Midwest. Uh, I was born in uh, Michigan. I was in there for six weeks, but <laughs> came out here. And uh, so he started his career up here in Phoenix, went down to uh, Tucson. I was the GM there for a casting supply place to make it long and short. I ended up falling into a machine shop when I was about 12 years old. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, about a month away from my 13th birthday. Uh, so there was a lot of 
pens yeah. and 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 having to get it approved by varying the state the city etc oh, really? but the government's been taking my money since i was that young uh <laughs> and so i've learned a great deal i started out as a janitor there uh just a general guy uh, learned um, about tumbling the burring saw cutting and then i slowly worked my way up to becoming just kind of like taking parts on and off our horizontals or our lathes and then ultimately be learning setups by the time i was about 15 16 years old and I was one of the first folks to run a two machine, two workstation cell system in the state. Uh, so I did that from pretty much to about to about 18 and I tried my hat at, at some college. It, it was okay. It just wasn't getting it for me. I ended up having more fun in our industry because we were learning so much. And I yeah. went to work for Methods Machine Tools. It's, it was yeah. called Methods West out here. Uh, that's some many, many moons ago. Mm-hmm. And I started out there in service, uh, doing PMs uh, or preventative maintenances for the machine yeah. tools, uh, some service calls, uh, which I was not really happy. And all of a sudden an opportunity opened up with p- the parts department. So I got to learn all the varying parts and learn inventory, shipping, logistics, and mm-hmm. uh, making sure that the customers, whether they knew it or not, I was always looking out for what if that labyrinth seal goes out? What if they need this O-ring? What if, so I was always ordering and stocking parts because it's frustrating when a machine goes down being a former machinist, as I like yeah. to say. Sure. And, and so we uh, evolved into salesmanship and into accessories and tooling. And then they asked me to sell Fanuc Robo drills. I sold a lot and they said, okay, maybe you should start selling the rest of the lines. And so we took off and, and the product lines that we represented then were Nakamura Tomei. Uh, yep. Fanuc Wire, Fanuc Robo, uh, the, of course, the Matsuro machines. And it was uh, just like a kid in a candy store because I learned how to set up and, and work on die syncing EDMs and wire EDMs and uh, screw machines. And so you're always learning and applying that. And, and it's, it was a lot of fun until I, I said I was thirsty for more. I felt like I kind of hit the ceiling. And in 2008, I, I ended up venturing over back to um, back to this side of the industry, working in a company called Vitron. They're still around today. They're completely different from what they were, but we were very automated. We had, when I was there, we had five cells um, all linked in together. Uh, we had the largest palletized five-axis Matsura uh, in, in the continent. The only other one was 180 pallets at the time was in Israel. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, it was for Iskar. So Iskar's making, you know, the same cutter bodies and everything. Um, just a phenomenal outfit. We we did a lot of cool stuff at Vitra. We we did manufacturing, fabrication, welding. Uh, so we were almost a full service provider, less the outside services. We also mm-hmm. bolted in a lot of mechanical assemblies. And then we started to get into the uh, wire harnessing, wire wrapping, buying PWBs and CCAs and putting all those together. Learned a lot about bombs and threads and and uh, it, it's uh, it's a great deal of experience. And they put me into like kind of the customer service area and in a couple of years, uh, working a lot of hours, just trying to come up the learning curve. I, I'd get in at like 6, 6.30 in the morning. I'd be there to about 6.37 at night and... Uh, they were worried I was getting burnt out. So they said, back it off a little bit. And then mm-hmm. the customers started to really enjoy my interactions. And so they said, how about you go manage them as a, as a business development manager, picked up th- four programs. They all hit at once. Okay. And they said, 
okay, now we want you to be over all those programs. So I, I had my first taste of what it's like to actually manage people at that point mm -hmm. instead of managing myself. Um, and I've been on that trail ever since, which is about over a decade now, probably 11 years worth of managing mm -hmm. people, not just projects and partnering yeah. with them. Uh, so to kind of cut to the chase, that's my background. And, and after I had left uh, Vitron, um, I decided to go out on my own. It didn't, didn't really work well for the family. Uh, it was very difficult to, to go back into the sales and service side of the industry mm -hmm. uh, in 2016. So I tried really hard and I ended up going into shops and it turned into a big interview, like mm -hmm. almost every one I went into. And, sure. and I eventually took an offer. Uh, so I worked for a company uh, over in Tempe. Great. Probably the best mechanical minded individual I'd been around. His name's Doug Kling. Uh, he, he's no longer there. He's sold his business. It's uh, Kling's Aerospace is now Align Precision out here. Yep. Uh, but Brad, our owner, I, I've known Brad since the 90s, uh, just through the relationships of the sales and the service side. Mm -hmm. And uh, ironically, I had talked to him before I made the decision to go to Kling's and he was, oh, I'm fine right now. And then that changed two years later. Uh, so I decided, you know, I, I do want to change. I, I want to come over and help Brad. And so uh, I'm the succession plan for Brad right now. And, and it's essentially uh, just been rebuilding out of all this fun stuff with the pandemic. And I don't even like mm -hmm. talking about it anymore, but you, you kind of have to understand where you're at or where you came from in order to know where you're going. Uh, sure. Yeah. But that's pretty much it in a nutshell. That's okay. kind of quick. but <laughs> Wow. And I just want to go back to the thing you said about the big five axis pool. So that was a 180 pallet system with how many spindles? Just one. one. That's spindle. the thing. It's, it's, this is going to sound bad, but I always said, this is dumb. Why don't we have, why don't we have another spindle line up next to it? And you go around this big carousel. It's a beautiful machine. It's really meant for high production and just to run all the time. Mm -hmm. We had about 60 some odd pallet stations out of the 180 taken. When it was originally bought, those stations were all filled with like three or four partner members that had to run to those volumes and just stay continuous. And um, that work kind of ebbed and flowed and we put new stuff in there. But uh, yeah, nonetheless, it's a, it's a big machine. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, all right. And so then let's, uh, let's learn a little bit about Genuine. Uh, what does the yeah. company look like today? What do you specialize in? What are your machines? Absolutely. So... We started, we, we were founded in 1996. To give you some background, uh, Brad and his brother uh, worked together for their father and their shop's still around. It's just down the road, actually, a couple of miles down the road. Okay. Um, but Robert Gottwald came into Brad's office and said, you know, Brad, you're, you and your brother just aren't going to get along. So I'm going to back you and you'll pay me back. And that's what he did. He gave him a bay, gave him a, a working capital for material and he gave him a, a, a lathe and a welder 10 months into that he actually got his first vendor code and we've been serving the aerospace industry directly ever since uh so in 97 we moved into our campus that we're in now so okay. we started and we just took over one suite another suite another suite so 27 years later we have um 63,500 square feet uh when I came on board, we had the one building, which is directly north of where my office is, and then the, the south uh, 
office that I'm in right now, we started to take that over, move in. So I moved in production pieces over here from next door, mainly ITAR. So when you walk in, it's kind of like a fishbowl. There's another wall. Uh, there's some windows that you can peek in uh, should you should you need to um, or if you want to. And we've now taken over another suite for, for future growth because I've moved the business before. It is not fun in our mm -hmm. space, especially in aerospace. So it's made our customers feel very comfortable. And now I'm not comfortable because we want to fill it. And, and so we're going to fill it. Uh, we've got some good projects. Um, so the, the journey has been kind of from a vision plan to, to find a different way, a better means of doing business. And there's uh, and you can see Brad's hands on everything. And the, the original guys that were here that helped build it, of which a couple were left. And um, just some of the designs that they did for the, the fixturing and their approach was just like, holy crap. It's like, that is an awesome fixture and uh, you don't want to mess with it because it's just so unique. Um, mm -hmm. And so we've predominantly been aerospace and defense. Uh, we, we did work for some uh, dairy industry folks along the way, et cetera. And then we've got more focus here in the last, uh, I'd say, six to eight years before I got here solely on aerospace and defense work. Our main customers are Honeywell and Raytheon. Uh, we have a, uh, we're, we're fortunate we just got approved for Northrop Grumman. Um, just, just Congrats. to name a few. Thank you. Yeah. The team did all that. I'm super proud of them. Um, and we've, uh, we've got a, a strategic plan for a couple more that we're, we're looking to onboard. Uh, and I, I won't talk about those just yet, but I'd be happy to when we get there. And I'm, I'm currently looking to standardize the business because it went from get, get the work in to get it out. Now it's how do you standardize everything so we have really crisp value streams mm -hmm. and we have more sustainable, predictable results. And so the mm -hmm. profitability is not where I want it to be at all. And I take this out of Alan Mulally's uh, book. He has this thing called PGA. It doesn't stand for Pro Golf Association. It stands for Profitable Growth for All. Mm -hmm. If if you look at today's wages and the inflation and everything, I really feel for our people that are driving their trucks to and from work because it's expensive for gas. Arizona has been really difficult. We've had some of the highest gas prices. In addition to that, just the cost of living is going up. So it's got to be profitable growth for all. And that takes a whole team working together and in unison, climbing the mountain, pushing the boulder up it. And mm -hmm. we are getting there. A lot of that's uh, uh, in flux. I'm pleased with some of the needle mover activities we have going on by the operations team, our quality team. Uh, and I know that we will get there. We'll get to a position to where we can start to get some of our 20th century machines because we have 20th and 21st century and the, the 20th century machines, they've, they've done enough. It's time to get them out of here and move sure. on. Um, but with that, we've, we've, we had 41 machines. We're down. I've decommissioned some, traded some in. So we're, I think we're at 38, 37 right now. Okay. And it, we have a huge mix. It's, uh, uh, Matsuras to uh, a Samsung, uh, a DMG, Haas, um, Toyota Oia, Yamasiki Oias. Uh, so we have kind of a, a Mazax, and and we also have on the lathe side of the house because it's split. We have approximately twenty five mils, and then the balance are lathes, one wired, one uh, EDM drill. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. in. And I'd like to add more capacity to the wire at some point. I'd like to add possibly a die sinker, a lapper, anything to help the machinists true up their material and some of the more difficult applications we're starting to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of a, it's kind of where I'm at. I also failed to mention the Kitamuras. We have a, a few Kitamuras out here that were bought for a project. Project's cool. We repurposed them for other ITAR product. Mm-hmm. And on the lay side, like I said, we have a lot of Morisikis, DMGs, and Nakamura Tomei's, and yeah. a couple of Mazaks. So, okay, right on. That's a nice complement of capable machines. Yeah. Thank you. Very cool. And uh, mostly soft metals, hard metals. What uh, what kind of your sweet spot there? We are a blend, so predominantly uh, 50 50 is the best way Paul to word it. I think 50% is going to be the sorry about that. 50% of it's going to end up being the uh, aluminum, and we do 2005, uh, 6000, and 7000 series. Predominantly 6,000, some 7,000, depends on if the application's for structural or not. And mm-hmm. uh, then on the other side, we go, so we go from the most uh, malleable part to the most dense on the periodic table. So now we have mm-hmm. tungsten down here, Inconel 600, 700 series, NEMA stainless, we run it. Uh, right. But we predominantly deal with 138, 15.5, 17.4. Uh, some miraging steel every once in a while, which is just about a 17% blend of nickel inside. It's tough to cut, but mm-hmm. it's boring to watch too, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's there. Um, and I know I'm missing, and then we have some of our milder steels. And then, uh, obviously the last one is titanium. We do a lot of titanium. Mm-hmm. Very good. And I imagine fairly complex, fairly complex geometries. Yeah. So we, uh, yes, yes. We, we have some ultra precision parts. What I mean by ultra precision, uh, some of these are just ridiculous tolerances that we get and root radiuses back to the plane that they're on on the datum structure. And it's like, you want three tenths there. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, how do you measure that? And so we have to take molds and trig it out. And, and our customer's been working with us on some of those. But we, we typically hold three tenths all day uh, here. It's not a big deal for us. We wow. have some applications that we have to we have to hold a little bit tighter. Um and I, I got a caveat with that. Some of that's to itself, within itself. So when we talk about a datum structure, mm-hmm. we're, we're probably about a, a thou to five tenths. Got it. Yeah. Those are tight parts. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Impressive. Nice capabilities. Um, so uh, obviously ISO and AS9100 certified and ITAR yes. and all that. And I would like to get a little bit later, get into cybersecurity, CMMC, what you guys are doing there. Love um, it because uh, it's becoming a very hot topic, um, of course, for those shops serving the defense space. Um, how, yeah, what I mean, if you had to say for someone that really, you know, they know the industry, they know shops, what is kind of the specialty? Why do why do OEMs come to you? What do they trust you with? What do you do better than other shops? Uh, I would struggle to answer that if it was a couple of years ago, but today I can firmly say that it's our, our stellar service that we provide with transparency. A lot of shops like to hold things close to the pocket, and I've learned you better tell them everything and get it all out in the open mm-hmm. because they have armies of people that they will offer you to help. And <laughs> right. So it, it's, it's got to be stellar service, and that's just being brutally honest. 
And it's taking a look in the mirror and blaming ourselves, having extreme ownership first, rather than just blaming the customer or, or what have you. Uh, it's not to say that the customer is always, always right. It's just that you have to have your facts in a row. Um, and our people, our people are really working with me um, to get the culture established and developed. And we still have a lot of work to do um, coming from the shop floor, Paul. It's just one of those things where, I didn't like not knowing what's going on. I didn't like, where are we heading? Uh, how are we doing? <laughs> uh, those types of things. So I, I tend to talk a lot with the team. And as um, some of my coaches, my leadership coaches, uh, business coaches, whatever you want to call it, they say, don't tell your people everything. You'll, you'll spook them. And, and I'd say, ah, no, no, they need to know this stuff. No, yeah, there's certain things we can't talk about because they just can't relate and that's not to say that they don't understand. It's just that they probably don't know what we're referring to and they haven't ran a business before, which isn't like a household income. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, uh, I filled in my own blanks 15 years ago and, and I've completely thrown them all away because of that. Uh, but uh, essentially, it's, it's the people are starting to galvanize a lot more, use their voice. They know they're not going to get yelled at. They know that they're um, not going to get, you know, threatened or disciplined. It's like, we want to know you're the subject matter expert. So tell us what's wrong. Mm -hmm. Even if you have to walk, you know, a quarter mile for a setup, let's do a spaghetti chart. And we've done that before. We, we saw how much our people were having to walk around. It's like, why are those tools not over here? How come that work holding's on the shelf and it's not down here? Why do we have a shelf? Why isn't it open? You know, it's just uh, a lot of pulling from some lean experience from, prior projects, prior senseis, a lot, lot of opportunity here still, a target-rich environment. And um, I really want to give back to the industry in a sense that people invested in me, and so I want to invest in them. And I want to show them just how great they never thought that they were, if that right. makes sense. It's because right. a lot of us beat ourselves up and was like, oh, I can't do that. Yeah, you can. Right. Let me show you. You can do that. Yeah. So it just takes a lot of patience and and it takes a lot of consistency, um, but more importantly, it just takes uh, the right environment. And, and if I'm not creating that environment, then shame on me because I could affect the trajectory of all these lives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, you just mentioned a few things there that I want to double click on. Um, obviously, you, you, you said lean, you talked about spaghetti diagrams. Um, so you are implementing a lot of sort of lean principles, continuous improvement concepts there, it sounds like. And we, we have, yeah, go yeah, ahead, and then, sorry. And then how do you, how do you get that buy-in? And at some shops, it's kind of an uphill battle to get that culture to really embrace continuous improvement. Yeah, I, I failed. Um, and when I say that, I say that with a smile on my face, cause it means I learned and I didn't get the buy-in Paul when I did it, uh, in my first year, I brought in my sensei that I had trusted. We did a lean book club. Basically, it blew up in my face because I had realized that some of these folks didn't have a background strong enough. And uh, the ones that did gravitate towards it, oh, man, just floodgates of ideas. So I said, we've got to pause on this and let's go focus on the real issue. And what we've focused on now for our, our facility, at least, is how do we standardize our flow uh, visual controls. And so we've, we've just kind of just done a little scratch of the surface and I'm anxious to do the seven S 
because it's no longer five. It, it was six. And now with cybersecurity, it's an, another S it's seven S. And so, so with, with that, I want to do more of the, um, uh, the signage, the tape, and um, with us being in flux with operations, like contemplating, is this really the best layout? And does does it make sense to put this here? So they're real fit, really figuring some of those things out now. And once that foundation happens, I will be more adept to actually going back out and bringing in a consultant to help us with the Kaizen's and, or the Kaizen bursts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to get proficient enough where we're doing our own bursts, and that could be five years from now. Uh, I think we're ripe for some um, 5S or 7S rather in the next year. Uh, our focus right now has been getting the work uh, back out since we're blessed with a, a significant backlog and we've got we've to really focus on that. My team doesn't have too much time to focus on this project, that project, et cetera. And mm-hmm. listening to them and they're like, Nate, I just, the bandwidth's not there right now. Right. Yeah. Get work orders out the door. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, good problem to have. So, yeah, for sure. Um, so how do you do that? How are you increasing throughput? So the, the way that we're doing it right now is, is we are standardizing our tool libraries and our machine tools. We are also standardizing them by material type. So you don't need to have a 300 tool matrix on a horizontal. You, you, you need to determine what your, what your tools are going to be for that metal that you're cutting. So if it's aluminum, that's an easy, easy pick. If it, if you're running aluminum and then you're running stainless, you're going to have totally different geometries, coatings, et cetera, as you know. And, mm-hmm. and so it's picking the standards. Okay. We're going to use uh, five eighths end mill. It's going to be two flute. Then we're going to use a four flute. Then we're going to step it down to a one eighth end mill. We need a spot. We need a drill. So they're currently working on all that. And that's the changeover, the SMET, the single minute exchange mm-hmm. of dies is what we're really focused on right now. Yeah. Um, and a lot of cross training and how do we start to address the problem that no one's really helped with. I, I see people helping now, but it, it, it's the talent acquisition process is it's not, it doesn't stop once you bring them in, you have to continue to get them to acquire new knowledge. Mm-hmm. But I see that, that since there's no trade schools or not enough of them, and since there's not enough folks that are, really promoting manufacturing, which is really STEM and it's, it's the science, the tech, the engineering, the math, all of it. Uh, we have to do it and we have to partner with the local chapters of the NTMA. I would start there. And then we have to look at community colleges and then we have to go, what are we going to do in in house? Because that's still not enough. And my father used to tell me stories about his mentor at a mold and dye shop. Um, and just some of the stories, like here's a, here's a one and a half inch, I think it was one and a half inch cube Mm -hmm. out of stainless. Here's a file, make a, make a ball bearing. And I'm like, you're kidding. He goes, no, I'm like, are are you serious? He goes, yeah, you'd make you file that. I'm like, holy crap. And I've been to some builders. Um, I had the pleasure of going to Bluffton, Ohio and seeing Grove. They do a phenomenal apprenticeship program. Phenomenal. Probably the best I've seen. Uh, outside of Lockheed Martin's, by the way. Okay. Um, and Lockheed Martin's got a really good one in their Fort Worth facility. That's all I can say. And then with respect to what I saw at Grobe, they would transition their students 90 days, 90 days, or six months, just depending on the process that they were learning. Yep. So we've adopted a similar philosophy 
we don't have a lot of people. We have about uh, 80 right now, and we're looking to get about 10 to 15 more uh, machinists pre predominantly and mm -hmm. for all shifts. And it's mainly to uh, help us uh, rest some of the crew. We're having to alternate folks right now. But also I want to start looking at is there grant money out there for, for some of these things that we can latch on to to help fund what doesn't make us money right now. Short term, long term, it will. We sure. we graduate our own folks in our own program. It, it, it could be huge. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, we just went over a lot of stuff. I want to back up a little bit. Um, you're talking about standardizing tools per equipment and type of alloys or metals you're making. Because you're all all aerospace and defense mostly, are you reprogramming existing? programs, existing part numbers with this new standardized tool set? And if so, are you having to do all new FAIs and get your customers buy-in for that? Yes, it depends on the customer and their flow down. Um, and there are certain fixed lock processes that we cannot do without doing a request to the customer. Yeah. Yes, if we generate new code, new code, we have to, or especially for optimizing it, mm -hmm. uh, certain customers do need to know about it. Other customers just need the paperwork that says, okay, I have a different method and approach. And right. uh, we've been, we have several feedback loops, Paul, installed on the floor. Uh, we're kind of unique and uh, in the sense that we have a computer at every single work center. So that's where our, our a, that's phenomenal, right? I'm a believer in that. Absolutely. I, I, I know you are. So, so it's, is the first facility that, that I've uh, had the pleasure of serving and I came in there and he had them I'm like, huh, right. so I've never seen that. And what, what I'm noticing is the opportunity to inform the employee, allow them to be you know trained at that computer while their machine's running. If they haven't, if they don't have to do any calculations to fill out their in-process inspection mm -hmm. yeah. sheets, which are all soft copy. So it's live real data on a workbook that quality could look at. Um, and, and so that's, that's been pretty nice in the sense that uh, having, having the workstations there uh, has kind of got me thinking about other opportunities where they can have quick links to specifications or standard operating procedures. But in that, they have these links to a software that we use called monday.com. Yep. And essentially, it's a collaboration project management. You can do a lot of workflows and, and other sure. things, but we created a custom form. So we have several feedback loops. One's called the voice of the floor. And oh, they, nice. yeah, it's, it's something that... Um, uh, I can't take the credit for it. A guy I worked with, uh, he helped me with it and I brought that idea over here. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, his name's Scott Bayer. So, so Scott and I worked on that in a prior life. And, and I said, this is just so easy to use. I'm just, I don't want to reinvent the wheel. So we deployed it here. Mm -hmm. And with that being deployed here, uh, we got a lot of feedback and we started to, um, realize that, that the folks, when I launched it four years ago with the team, we started to realize that, that they didn't really engage a lot. So I started talking it up more and more. And that's when I had the understanding that, okay, we weren't asking them before. Mm -hmm. It took us about three quarters and then, then they started puking on us. And so then we had a huge pile to go through because they started to realize we're serious about this. I'm not letting up off the accelerator. So that allows our operators, our inspectors, even I can go on, on an, and I can complain about something that's not optimized or what I feel is not working correctly mm -hmm. based off my experience or what I just did or observed. And mm -hmm. um, 
We like it to be job specific, customer specific when it can be. But if it's just general ideas, like can we move the tooling, you know, where it's closer between the machines so we don't have to walk, you know, absolutely. So those are pretty, pretty easy, low hanging fruit ideas. But now we're getting into the nitty gritty Mm -hmm. specific to fixturing. So the other feedback loops that we created, we actually created a feedback loop for fixturing. And it's like we had a lot of legacy fixtures, a lot of tribal knowledge that we had in here walked out the door or, or has walked out the door, uh, yeah. whether it was under me or before me. So that became advantageous. And so as soon as we start to make a modification, if the tool path doesn't change, or just modern a fixture, not a problem. But if we're starting to look at the park going, mm, we can make this a lot easier. We don't have to handle it five times, let's handle it two times. That's a total, total renew IPI, new operation right. sketch, et cetera. Right. And then the final one that we have is it's kind of duplicated. It's what I'm, what I mean by that. It's for NPIs or new product integrations onto the floor. Yep. We want to grade the pre-work because that's where shops lose it. And the larger you become, the more you lose it there. And it's, it's, are you, are you, are you tight in the sense that your communication's tight? Are you communicating clear and often as the, as the needle moved on this step? So this step can start and, uh, you could run steps in parallel where quality is doing their forms and their CMM programs while engineering is doing their sketches, doing their IPIs, et cetera. And it's, uh, it's been eye-opening in the sense that we actually have done pretty darn well with our MPIs and mm-hmm. we haven't had a lot of leakage, but the leakage that we had, it really kind of created some investigation for us to go after the MPI process just essentially it gives them a voice to let us know if the, is the tooling ready? Is the fixture ready? Is the program ready? Is the program good? And we grade our engineers off of that. We grade our, our quality folks off of that. And then we realized that we had to have a, a meeting of the minds. And so we're relaunching everything again because it was clunky, wasn't manned for a period because of a manager leaving and another manager coming in. Um, but those are things that happen every day inside machine shops that impact what the internal and external customers. And if we're not delighting those folks internally, then they were definitely not delighting them externally either. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. that is, there's so much you said there, the, um, the voice of the floor and well, that sounds awfully like a Kaizen newspaper, actually, just not an actual Kaizen <laughs> newspaper where people are putting uh, yeah. their ideas of things they want to solve and, you're, you're solving them. Um, so maybe that's a, a way to, you know, people are used to filling out surveys and providing their feedback mm-hmm. in life. Maybe that's a more, um, uh, an easier one to, to get people on board with than calling it a Kaizen newspaper lean process. Yeah. yeah I think when you, when we put the Kaizen newspapers up, cause we did four Kaizen events three years ago and uh-huh. or two and a half and, it was very intimidating for everyone. And it was like, I had to knock the dust and cobwebs off right. of myself and the rust. And um, the newspapers are great. just keeps everything in front of you. But I like how you actually recognize that it is a feedback loop. It's for improvement. Sure. And of course. Uh, it's, uh, y- you know, we haven't launched it down to the floor. We've included, we've included a small group of folks in Kaizen events. Okay. And a lot of them are still here. So they know where I want to go. They know yeah. how I think. Uh, which is scary, but but it's also beneficial because you always have to know how to manage up the chain of command, and I have to know how to manage down the chain of command appropriately so I don't uh, impact you know someone's day in, in such a negative way 
when I'm just trying to find an answer. So, sure. So, um, you said it took three quarters for people to start like realizing that you were serious about this whole wanting feedback thing. Yeah. What did, what did that take to get people to start opening up and feeling safe that they're not going to get, you know, um, being, yeah, I'm sorry. It just being visible. Yeah. You got to be on the floor. Uh, my, I don't like my office to begin with, but being a former ops guy, uh, you're always on the floor. The more you're out there in the trenches with the team, he, hearing what the and seeing what what they're saying is is probably the best way to word that. You can start to appreciate the crap they're putting up with, and we have to our job. Yeah, I, I, I've had a mentor say, we're crap magnets, you know, when you're in a high level position. I said, well, yeah, that's what we get paid to do. It's what we signed up for. But the folks on the floor, they do not need to deal with that. So how do we remove it? And, and it's been uh, me on the floor with the team, engaged, uh, very tiresome, though, um, a lot going on. And I remember it was 2021. And so it was still a weird world and bubble that we were in. Um, everyone was super paranoid. It sounds selfish, but I was living on the floor a lot and I was hovering over a lot of managers, which isn't healthy. And it's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for them. Uh, but again, it's just because I'm coming from one foundational step is like, listen to your people that are the subject matter experts with starting with your janitor to your, your, your machinists, your inspectors, because they're going to tell you what's wrong with the facilities. So you can, you know, help make it more safer. You can listen to your machinists to help protect, you know, them or the product or the process and listening to the inspectors. So you can understand their frustrations with the floor, not checking parts, which is always what we hear. And, and then you hear the, the floor say the other opposite. It's like, well, they don't know what they're checking and they don't tell us to adjust. And it's like, we have to, we have to bridge those gaps and we have to bring them together. And the only way I know to do that is to just be visible, be consistent. And that's what we did. Uh, it's taking a lot of time to, because of what we all went through as a, through the globe, I guess you could say, it's taking a lot of time to get the right assets into place, some internally and, and some uh, that we had to go to the open market. And we're definitely uh, on a good trajectory going forward. Uh, they understand who I am and I want to listen to the folks. I want to hear their opinion. Doesn't mean we're going to do it. Doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It's just we have some theories of constraints we're operating under sometimes. Could be cash flow. Uh, could be that it's just not on the budget. It could just mean that we have to sacrifice some over here versus over here. And that's just the gingerly dance I've been doing, like a tight rope worth a balancing bar and <laughs> trying to make sure that we don't we don't uh, go the wrong way with the customers, the wrong way with our people. And, and I'm more of a... Uh, Sir Richard Branson is is someone I really admire, uh, and I guess you could call him one of my influences. And and he takes care of his people and treats them well enough so that. And I've always loved this, and I'm really implementing it as best I can to treat them the way that you'd want to be not only be treated, but and train them well enough so that you hope that they stay because you treat them so well. But if they do go on, you can watch their career flourish. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful principle. I definitely, uh, definitely align with that. Sometimes there's uh, there's a better place, but hopefully, if you can work through 
uh, you know, whatever stuff people have, mm -hmm. you can, they can thrive in your own shop, but it's not always going to be the case. It's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But it's so rewarding though. When you, when you get one and you just mm -hmm. see them just take off and you're just like, wow, that's, mm -hmm. that was so awesome. <laughs> to, uh, I just want to stick with it for just a second longer. Cause I think it's so important on the, um, you know, you're, you're coming in as sort of a new leader. Um, do you have to make sure that you're approaching the conversations with, with the team, like from a super place of empathy of like what they're dealing with every day and you don't have any ego about how the process is today and you're wide open to feedback about what needs to change and what struggles and, and waste they're dealing with basically. So I am an empathetic servitutor, servitutal type of leader to a point I've learned now, Paul, after being in this position, which I've never been in before, you have to temper back some of the things that you do um, because you, you also have to be, come across as the leader and strong enough or stoic enough, I should say, uh, to not be impacted by the negative news that comes in the shop every day because there's always something going on with the shop and and that's just nature of the beast and Absolutely. uh it, it's it's interesting though i i think that you have to be empathetic and listen because i've learned you know when people would just listen to me um it made me feel better and i i finally had this crap bag i had on my back it's off and i feel like okay now i can go back to work and and so I know that we do have to listen to them um, and empathize with them, but there's certain aspects where I do mean business in the sense that I, I'm a competitor. I want to compete. I want to do something. We all say we want to do something different. I really want to do things differently than uh, what I saw in other shops or growing up. And I really want to see the industry uh, be what I, I've known it can be mm -hmm. that I I've heard so many beautiful stories from they're now probably guys in their seventies and eighties uh, from the seventies and eighties, 1970s telling us how awesome it was. And it's like the heyday of manufacturing. And it's like, well, why are we not, well, we need to get it built back up and put it center stage because every great nation produces goods. And if you stop producing goods, you become a weaker nation. And that's just historic. Look at Rome, look at England, look at, us, you know, and mm -hmm. what could happen. I mean, I don't want to put that out there, but what could happen with us sending things offshore and there's a huge onshoring effort going right now. Mm -hmm. We are not ready for that. We have all got to answer the challenge to our a patriotic duty to keep the work in, in country. We've got to do our patriotic duty for our grandkids by starting now and teaching the could be in their thirties all the way down to being 12 years old. And it's like, let's start getting them involved with uh, the shop classes and bringing those back and the automotive classes, bringing those back. And um, mm. I don't know what that's going to look like, but that's where I think that we can make a huge impact and be self-sustaining. Uh, but at the same time, the, the amount of uh, business opportunities are out there are very distracting. Mm -hmm. So, so we've got to stay focused on the, I don't want to say the money. You got to stay focused on the opportunity. Uh, the money will come 
and the profits will come if you do the right things and you're paying attention to the right signals in your business. Mm -hmm. And what I like to look at, I look at a lot of metrics. Uh, yeah. So I, what we have a, a daily accountable structure here, tier one through tier four every day. So I have a SKUDIC board and safety is number one, quality. And then we, we look at our delivery and, and our impacts. And, uh, but, but beyond that, I look at productivities and efficiencies and where the improvements are running on a project plan, they start to translate over into those other metrics. And that ultimately ends up coming out on my uh, P&L statement. And as I start to track the trajectory of the P&L, looking at where the, the improvement plan's coming down to close, that's solved. And you start to see things go in the right direction we're starting to cook with gas. So, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of, uh, uh, like I said, a target rich environment. I, I feel like over here and, and, um, def definitely not bored. <laughs> that's, that's definitely <laughs> not going to happen. We're not going to be bored. Sure. Uh, but yeah. Can you elaborate a little bit more on those metrics? That was going to be one of my next questions besides oh. the basics of on-time delivery and quality. What are the sort of new, you know, different metrics that you might really focus on in this, um, this system you were just describing. So I, I tend to focus right now, we, we had to carve out a, um, kind of a unique metric with us kind of falling behind a little bit. We picked up on, uh, we, we had the delivery. Yeah. Delivery. Uh -huh. Yeah. So we, we track our, our jobs, our sales orders and what the average days late are. And the reason we do that is because we want to see what jobs are being impacted or those sales orders, what are what what job numbers are being impacted by that? Are we moving the needle or not? Is it getting worse? If it's getting worse, why? And we overlay overlay cap and reservation plan, which is really ambiguous. It's a snapshot in time, and because capacity could change at any moment, right? Mm -hmm. And so we've um, we we look at the capacity reservations to understand where are the peaks and valleys, and how do we soften them out? And I've talked with our master planner, Ronnie Garcia. Uh, the last channel ops manager. And I said, look, we've got to do the, the drum buffer rope. And so the drum buffer rope is essentially your bottleneck. What work centers are spiked because that needs to be your drum. The okay. buffer is how do you even that out? Can you take the work and move it away? Mm -hmm. Or do we have to take the work and move it, send it outside, free up some capacity. Mm -hmm. And then the rope is just a communication back and forth from the lead to the, to, to the planner, um, planner back to ops, ops up to up to me, and on how they're faring. And um, there's a significant amount of uh, focus on getting ourselves into a position to capitalize on what the customers want right now. And all of our customers want uh, is to pull product in, and we get a lot of drop-in orders. Uh, we get a lot of pull-in requests, and I want to capitalize on those. And I also want our team to feel that impact too, from from a financial perspective, in a good way. Mm -hmm. uh, and once we get those those items caught up, that we'll finally be in a position, I think, to be um, not only selective with what we do, what we allow into genuine for for work, because some of us all come from varying backgrounds. Some of us have owned machine shops before in a smaller capacity, we go to that bias, which is what we did. And we were slow and we filled up on over a hundred brand new parts, which is a record for us. It's three times the amount we've ever done. And, wow. and it really exercised us and it really had us uh, learn uh, fast. So I always say fail forward fast. And, and we've, we've learned a great deal. Let's be selective. Let's stop trying to be everything to everyone. Let's mm -hmm. take work that, that meets our model, which is 
build a print contract work and how do we get from substantiation to that? So, uh, and then the final one that I always monitor, I have a kind of a snippet out of what's based off of our budget for revenue, what we think we're going to do with adders. And I tend to look at that and then I, I've got about six or seven custom tabs developed just for that. And what that does is it tells me how much is my revenue? What's my concentration by customer? How much of this customer's revenue was based off this procurement strategy because we signed up for it. We should, it should be running like at this level. And if it's not, we have to start beating down some doors and asking what's going on with that procurement strategy. And, uh, but EBITDA is huge for me and understanding where, where that's going. And um, of course, and you got your, your net and your operating and your gross profits that you're all looking at as well. So I tend to look at those. Uh, I don't like the drum roll at the end of the month, if you know what I mean? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. Right. So I've got the trailing view. Uh, so I've, I've split off a trailing view and I'm trying to get predictable. I don't like the word try, but uh, it's hard to predict what the customer cycles are right now because it's been so cattywampus. It's not, it hasn't been consistent since uh, 2020 and it's been kind of all over the place where we're pulling all this in. No, we're doing this. No, we're getting all this work. No, not really. It's like, well, we, it's hard to, hard to predict. So that way we know we can rest the crew or we know we need to be building ahead mm -hmm. uh, and, or we need to start hiring here, not here uh, right. all, all for our planning purposes. So short answer I would say is, is really understanding where our lates are at and why, and they track late operations next door on the tier twos and the tier one boards. And that's um, essential. It's essential for the leads because they want to know that they're getting out of, out of the hole and, with the Q4 push that we have right now, a lot of our customers are bowling for their end of year dollars, AKA mm -hmm. bonuses. And so yeah. I, I just tell the team, I said, look, they're human beings like you and I, they're, they're feeding their families and their dreams and their vision plans that are private. Like you and I, if you make them look good, they'll always remember that they'll always come back for more. And so they're like, Oh, so like light bulbs are going on with my team. It's like, mm -hmm. but we can't do it for everyone. And, and I love how they apply it, but there's certain certain things that, that we just can't do. We're not in a position to take, unfortunately, a, a customer that's got a very, very, very low concentration and say, okay, we're going to put you in the front of the line in front of the one that we can impact their whole quarter. You know, we've got to, we still have to serve all of them. Um, and it's unfortunate that we hurt some of those lower level customers because they're good people serving our industry. And, and it's, it's a shame that, that we can't serve everyone the way that we want to. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a few things. Do you, you mentioned financial impact your people. Do you do any kind of profit sharing or bonus based on profitability or? So we do a 401k profit sharing plan. So that's, that's pretty much the only avenue that we have currently that we offer. Okay. Um, so if they go in, they can invest in any time after their probationary period, which is 60 days. Okay. So if they want to go in, we match up to 4%. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just free money. Um, yeah. And that's, that's great. Uh, from a bonus perspective, uh, I was always taught that bonuses are great. They're not guaranteed. Uh, I don't have a scale or logic or anything built into it yet. Okay. And I would like to get there because I like, mm -hmm. I'm a strategic guy. So I'd like to have something out there that everyone can, can kind of, uh, gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately though, our, our business needs to come first. Um, yeah. and, Everyone inside that business will get fed once that happens. It's just a matter of, it's a matter of doing it together as a team. Mm -hmm. And 
we've uh, we do have you know bonuses that that do come up around this time of year. Uh, it's something that predates me that that Brad and uh, his wife Robin have done a great job of uh, supporting the the many folks here and their families, um, inclusive of a gift card that that we give out to every employee um, the week of Thanksgiving or right before for a turkey. So they nice. can, or whatever they want to use it on, you know, mm-hmm, it's 20, sure. 25 bucks, but, uh, we, I would like to do more, um, um something more formal. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, uh, when we sit down and do our budget, we, we like to talk about that topic, but we never really solve it, Paul. And I, I think I, I'm, I'm just going to have to canoodle it myself at some point here mm-hmm. and figure out if we can land on something more formal. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We did that at our, at our shop and I, I think, um, when people can see the financial impact to them of increasing throughput, increasing quality, um, that's a that's a real motivator for folks. It it really is, and it's just I'm trying to figure out a dollar value, yeah, or a percent. You know, it's like okay, sure. if, if if it's this, and can we do it by a scale? Can we do it by a tier? Can we? So there's a lot of things, and and I think uh, that if if anything, this has inspired me to bring this back to issue process with my executive team. And I'll do that in a couple of weeks and send it out to, to my team and see what they have to offer right. for ideas and inputs. Um, so it could get me thinking for the next, cause I've missed the boat this year. It would it'd be for next year. Sure. Sure. You, you've mentioned capacity a few times and obviously you're, you're in a situation where you have lots of what I call positive sales pressure, plenty of orders, yeah. lots of backlog. Um, do you, um, is, is part of the opportunity uh, to really understand your capacity in terms of what you're quoting and how you're, you know, accepting new orders and what you're promising for dates and making sure you're setting your, you and your clients up for success the first time rather than accepting something that uh, isn't super realistic? Yeah, it's so valid right now. And it's exactly what we've uh, been going through the past six months. And mm-hmm. when we, we won a bunch of work from April, uh, I think the end of March, but it really, all of it started coming in towards the end of April, uh, beginning of April, even into May. Mm-hmm. And when we looked back and we started to realize, it, I sat down with our estimator, Al, and Al and I started to unpack all of this together. And we've decided we're going to make a playbook. So that way he doesn't, he feels empowered to say no. Mm-hmm. And, and he, he feels empowered to ask questions like, where's this going, Mr. Customer? Right. And if, oh, I just need three pieces. I'm sorry. This, this is not what we do. Uh, if it was more, we can do more, you know? And, mm-hmm. and so he's feeling more confident now, which is excellent. So this playbook idea that we're still developing. In fact, we had our meeting yesterday on it and I've got some, uh, we're at the pipeline phase, which is kind of where you're at in a nice segue here. Mm-hmm. We want to be updating our pipeline and that pipeline, we need to be looking at that cap res going, where are we at? So mm-hmm. if we quote something in the validities, June of 2024, mm-hmm. all right. And we're asking our customer for an update in January, let's say, and they say it's still June and we get to April and we're looking at it, It's like, man, we filled up on work. Now we need to communicate back. Hey, Mr. Customer, this right. is the situation. You, your timing still June. Yeah. Our lead time is now elongated. Right. Um, what's beautiful about the modification to our tier boards, tracking the average days late of a job and the average days late of a sales order. Guess what that tells us? Our standard lead time went from this much 
to this much. So I said, quote the real lead time. And if we win it, we're not going to hurt them. If Mm -hmm. we do not quote the real lead time and we win it, we're going to hurt them. And if we're hurting them, we're hurting ourselves. So Al is totally gravitated towards that. He walks out there and he looks at the average days late and he goes, man, okay, I'm going to have to go quote X amount of weeks now. Mm-hmm. And the customer actually appreciates that. Even if yeah. we don't win the order, they're going to remember that. So um, uh, that's uh, something I learned from Lockheed Martin, a great guy named Pat Kennedy. He asked us to quote something in a prior life. He said, well, your competition's here. And I says, look, Pat, I said, I could tell you what you want to hear and you can give me the award and you can be upset with me for four or five more weeks after because I don't deliver it. Or I could just let you know this is what it is right now. And he goes, I absolutely love that. And so our relationship just took off. We did not win the award. Mm-hmm. Uh, but about two and a half months later, we got the order because he's he said that the other place had similar constraints and they weren't open and honest. And yeah. and it just seems to be a common thread that we have that we're so worried about our customers. Like they're just like us. Just yeah. just ask them questions, just tell them what's really going on. And they're probably gonna be shocked because they they've been through the ringer like we have, they've been through the ringer with lies and stories and it's just, they don't want that. They want to know when and how many and, and will you, will you take care of them if they're in a pinch? So. Well, that goes back to one of the first things you said about what differentiates your company is the sort of just radical honesty about what's going on and just being super candid and, you know, and it's brutal. It could be brutal, Paul. It's, it's not fun some days. But it's the, it's the I, I firmly believe it's the only way to go. Um, mm. I wrote a blog Thank you. last year, I think, maybe the year before, called, you know, about delivering bad news to your customer, right? When you know something is not going to turn out, you got to tell them immediately. It's, it's, it doesn't get better with age. It's not like a fine wine, you know, <laughs> bad news has to be delivered uh, as soon as you are certain of what the impact's going to be. Or even if you're not Completely. totally certain, but you're like, you know, we scrapped this material. We need to buy more, and the lead time is X, and that means our delivery date's going to get pushed out. And yeah, that now rather than telling you a week before the, you know, or you don't even tell them at all, and they they call you up the day after the orders due. Like, where's our parts? You're like, oh yeah, we're remaking those. It's going to be another yeah. two months. Yeah, that it's is- ter- it's brutal, and we've done that. I mean, we we've done that. I mean, we have varying skill sets, but it, it's it, and experience levels is the right word to say there. And that's where our opportunity is to coach them up. It's like, I call them teachable moments. And Mm -hmm. here's a teachable moment. This is what we do, how we do it, why. And, and the reason I I do it that way is because no one likes surprises, especially Mm -hmm. when they're expecting parts to show up in two weeks or two days. Um, And it, that does backfire. So you have to be consistent with the, the radical honesty as you, I call it just uh, being transparent and, Mm -hmm. The, the team has had to deliver a lot of bad news to me and they come in and you can already see it kind of on their face. Like they're, they're, they're disheveled. They're kind of sweating a little bit. They're bright red or, or whatever. They're, they're sweating too much. And I, well, I got, it's like, what's going on? And they tell me, Hmm, what's our plan to get from here to here? I don't yell at them. I don't, I don't cuss at them. I don't do any, it's just, okay. And then put my hand on their back and then I talk to them in private later and I make sure they're not doing this going down. It's like, no, mm-hmm. stay, stay up here because you getting distracted is not what we need right now. What we need is you focused so that we can go let our customer know what we're doing mm-hmm. and they're not going to like the news. No one likes bad news, but unfortunately it's even worse if you don't deliver it. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, it's good stuff. Um, so I want to ask, uh, as we kind of need to start wrapping up here before too long, two totally unrelated things. Um, one is uh, core values as it relates to your culture. Uh, I think I maybe saw something on LinkedIn or something that you really kind of focus on this. Is that we, the case? We, yes. So we picked our core values three years ago in okay. a part of that. So our core values is inspired. I don't, I have actually I have it on my, my door over here, but uh, so inspired. So we want to be innovative. We want our folks to be creative. We want them creating things and thinking. Uh, nurturing is is uh, essential in all that we do. We have folks that are learning new skills every day. We have folks that are cross-training. We have folks that want to go from this department to this department. So nurture your teammates. Uh, then our next one is selfless. We want to make sure what we're doing is is not because my ego. Just drop the E and go. Let's be selfless with what we're doing, with your time, with your attention, um, with the trainings, and passionate uh Passionate is is definitely something we have in machine shops. I think all machine shops. Uh, we just got to be careful it doesn't turn into its neighbor frustration. They share sugar, uh, so we want our folks fired up with what they do. <laughs> um, integrity. I, I need. I say more. I, I need folks to tell me what's going on. I, I don't want a bunch of yes uh, folks. I don't want a bunch of no folks. But I just want folks that are kind of challenging in the sense that, um, hey, th this is incorrect. And all right, let's go fix it. Um, respect. That's just a common ground that we have to have. It's essentially our um, fictitious bank accounts that even you and I have. We're depositing trust and respect in those right now as we talk and get to learn one another. And And it's the same with my team. And so I want to make sure they're always doing that. And we also want to have excellence. We want to aim for excellence uh, in all that we do. And we want to make sure that we're dependable what we do with these core values, Paul, is we, we actually promote the team. Uh, every quarter elects the individuals that live one of those values purely the whole quarter. And they give examples. And we talk about that in our quarterly town halls. We get them up. We have some swag bags. We give them some free stuff. When we first started it, it started with a monetary gain to mm -hmm. gain interest. And I always find that cheapens it a little bit. So slowly we pulled it away. And we had some awards and some some of the guys thought they were a little tacky. So we started pulling those away. They, they really just so far are content with the notoriety they get amongst their peers. Mm -hmm. And we'll take a photo of the group. We'll post it uh, actually in our lobby. So when you walk into our lobby, the first photo on your left-hand side is going to be the quarterly winners and the values that they won. Mm -hmm. And then it's going to be the individual that month. So every month I write a newsletter that goes home. So the spouses can read it, best friends can read it, roommates, kids, doesn't matter. And they can hear about the month we just had. They can learn about the individual that's on our team that is a VIP and they hit all eight values and how they hit them. And again, elected by their peers. Wow. And the final paragraph or page, I should say, is uh, essentially about where we need to go. Mm -hmm. And I don't hold back. I let them know where we're failing. I let them know what we need to do about it. I let them know where we need to go or who whose help we need. Um, I've learned in this process, the only thing that I could recommend if you're considering doing anything like this, be consistent and be vigilant. Uh, and it will take you and not just uh, some, you can't just assign this to someone. So you have to be uh, the chief visionary officer in my position 
the chief sales officer in my position, the chief influential officer in my position. And so I consider the CIO, the chief influential is essentially the culture and how can I influence the team to get out of their own heads or get out of their own way or man, you're doing, you're doing kick ass. Keep going. I'm proud of you. Keep going. We don't say that enough to people, especially men. Men don't like that. And I have no qualms about it. I don't care. I want you to know you're doing well when you're doing well. Um, and uh, I, I can say that uh, I think the team's receptive to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. I love the, um, the, the group uh, selecting their own peers and voting for it and you know, giving them that, uh, that kudos. That's, uh, that's fantastic. And Thank do you, you feel like that's as that you feel that materially change the culture over the last three years? It, it gave us a nice bump up. And now it's time to go into the next levels uh, of that. And one of them is we did our survey. Um, I've learned that you don't want to do a survey too too close together. You you want to give it time to breathe, like like a fine wine, since we talked about mm -hmm. wine earlier for mm -hmm. a second. It's like you need to give it about a year, maybe 18 months. But I, I think doing our survey at about a year, allowing uh, the team to see us enact the changes is going to be uh, very beneficial. So we want to KPI these mm -hmm. and... I also want to fold in another uh, set of rituals, and that's going to come from CultureWise, uh, David Friedman's company. He's out of, uh, he's back east. He's in Philadelphia. So mm -hmm. da David ran a successful accounting firm, sold it, and then he did this. He, he wrote about culture. Next thing you know, he's just taken off. And I love David Friedman. Um, and uh, I'm, I wish I could do it right now. Our focus is solely on, hey, you got the sales problem solved, genuine. Now let's get, get the work out. And then we can start to look at some of these initiatives to, to strengthen our culture. But uh, I think it's going to be a consistent beat of the drum for at least a few more years mm -hmm. and some modifications and consistency. Uh, the culture-wise piece, just real briefly, is like you would talk about, it's like your value. When I say... Um, uh, nurture. Nurture to me can mean one thing to you, can mean something else. But if we actually give examples and talk about what nurturing is, and you do that the whole week, the whole week, every tier meeting, every staff meeting, you talk about that. That's how you start your meeting. That's the concept. So you ritualize it. Week two, you go to your second value, do the same thing. And let's say you have 10, 15, 20, 30 values. You do that, you rinse, recycle, repeat. It never goes away. So it slowly just ritualizes. It's kind of like what hotels do uh, at lineups. And it's essentially, this is who we have coming in. This is what we have or restaurants even. Mm -hmm. And it's essential to the experience of, of the people that are coming in that are staying there, of course. And it's really, this is the experience that the people are feeling that have been here forever, or if they're brand new coming in on day one, and we want them to feel welcome. We want them to understand who we are, where we're going. I don't want it to be like a cult. It, 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 that's not it. I'm not trying to create that. I'm trying to create the uh, clarity around what we're looking for. And so that's why I gravitated towards the culture-wise uh, aspect. And and I maintain that, that there's a, a piece that we're installing at the beginning of the calendar year mm -hmm. uh, from EOS. It's called the Team Analyzer. Okay. We will be evaluating all leaders, not, not floor staff, none, none of those folks, but just the managers. Anyone that's managing uh, someone is going to end up having the team analyzer aspect to help strengthen our leadership, development, management, focus, and it's going to be all the values. Are you living by them? It's either a plus or a minus. We obviously want pluses. And then it's the GWC. Do you get it? Do you want it? 
do you have the capacity or capability for it? And if they're hitting those, they're doing this because as the book says that I've read Traction by Gino, it's just mm-hmm. every 90 days we kind of tend to reset and some right. of us need a good <laughs> good kick in the butt. Right. Yeah. Uh, so um, are there a lot of principles from uh, from Traction that you're trying to implement? Do you run your meetings, uh, you know, L10 kind of meetings, that kind of thing? Yeah, we do. Uh, we've awesome. got a uh, Bloom Growth is is who we partnered with, and they were actually the ones that the folks uh, from EOS had actually partnered with, and they're developing their own software now. Uh, it's mm-hmm. called EOS Beta. Uh, it's because it's in beta, and mm-hmm. or what EOS One, I think. Yeah. And then I've uh, got a constituent colleague of mine that's that's kind of a, a peer, and he's one of my go-to chairs. He he runs a, a different software that he absolutely loves, but I'm I'm okay with Bloom Growth. It, it maps out very well. The business plans there, the vision plans there. We've got a lot of work to do still on our accountability chart, which is AKA the org chart, and and so we we want to hone that in. I'm going kind of methodical. Uh, I'm a very impatient person. I wanted all this done in, in a year. To be honest with right. you, it's taking me almost two years to get here. Okay. And so I'm just really happy with the progress with the L10s. I'm happy with the team's buy-in on the team analyzer and how we're going to do it. I'm, I'm happy with knowing that we can get to the accountability chart next year. So it's, it's starting to uh, help me calm down a lot more because I can see the teams, what they're working on what the main issues are hitting their goals. Are they hitting their metrics? They're not hitting their metrics. What are we doing about it? Do we need to make an issue out of this? And so it's just talking about the real stuff. It's not leaving it open-ended and storytelling time. And maybe you wrote it down on a notebook or not, you know, and right. kind of flailing around. So that's fantastic. Yeah. The difference between effective and ineffective meetings is, is it's so, it's so different. It's so different. Um, Awesome. Well, I do want to ask you about cybersecurity. So let's just touch on that for a minute and then we'll get into some of some of the last few questions. Absolutely. You so, guys, yeah. What, what are you doing? Um, how far along? When did you start seeing clients really push you, you know, asking for your SBRS scores or whatever? So okay. the, the lay of the land. So just from a genuine perspective? Yeah. I take it. Okay. So, so, cause NIST and, and that's been around since 2013, like they were yes. letting us know over a decade ago. And so I know I, no one was doing I, it. <laughs> right. I, I latched onto it. I'm like, no one's going to do this. And I know that if we're going to get into it, we need to know how much money it's going to cost, how many people I need to have staffed, how much hardware and software I'm going to have to get. What do we have to do internally? So my mind was racing and now I'm at this entity, uh, genuine. And so when I got here, we were a negative, huge negative score. Um, so one of my, uh, uh, goals for, for, for when I onboarded was to get cybersecurity into a position. So I've partnered with a third party IT firm, uh, that I met from a prior employer that, uh, I just, I just trusted it and, and he's done a great job, uh, him and his team. Mm-hmm. So I brought uh snap tech IT in Carl in December of 2019 and he assessed us walked around looked at the servers everything came back and he goes well bad news is is you got a ways to go it's good news is is with you and me he goes we can get there right so we've uh, onboarded the right it manager shortly thereafter uh and we started to just dig in we've invested millions of dollars in it um yeah it's it's expensive because you have to change out 
your some of our servers were um, not the best. Some of them were outdated. And so we had to get our servers on the back end up to date. We just got done encrypting them. Um, so long and short, we went from a minus 90 score. We're actually, a, a, I think, a positive 92. And the way the scale works is it's a negative 200 to it's like 203. Thank you. To 110. Yeah. And so we, we were at 82 or 84. And then we knocked off a couple poems. Now we're up to, or poems. Now we're up to 90. Um, nice. Yeah. It's been really nice. It's, uh, it's just that, you know, when we're machine shops, we, we want to make parts and mm-hmm. we don't ever, uh, the, I don't want to speak for the old school guys, but in general terms, eh, it's just a computer, you know, uh, well, that's what the CNC is, but <laughs> it's like, this, this is housing all the files that run that. So I, I look at it like it's my pocketbook. I look at the customer's information as how do I keep that safe? Like I keep my personal credit card safe and my social security safe. And so that's, that's very marketable. I feel mm-hmm. to the customers because there's a lot of folks I know that are not going to take it serious, which is really unfortunate mm-hmm. uh, because that's, those are the folks that put the, the butter on your bread, so to speak. And you want to treat them like, like you treat your own wallet. And, We've done the um, access points. That was one of the main things we did in year one. We did a lot of the survey of what machines we have to replace in the space. We put uh, uh, monitoring, uh, wireless, uh, all updated, all per DOD specifications. And then we took it to another level because we wanted to get into uh, strategically a position to onboard more defense primes, i.e. Northrop. Uh, potentially future Lockheed Martin, maybe even NASA or SpaceX down the way. I don't know. But the, the point is, I want to make sure we're ready for those. I want them to just go, this is all done. Now let's go talk shop. Like, right. I don't want them freaked out about Cooey. I don't want them freaked mm-hmm. out about, um, well, do you have uh, the 32 controls in place? Well, no. And they look at you, it's like, we almost have 100. They're like, oh, whoa. And it's like, yeah, we, we're taking it serious. We have the manuals written. And we want to help support because... I take for granted, Paul, being able to sleep peacefully at night. Mm -hmm. And I think we all do. And having so many friends that are former or active duty military, I am not going to put our nation in a position that is going to impact so many innocent lives. I I don't want to be that guy. And I don't want us to be that guy. So that's a good approach. Um, I have a question. Have you, this is very specific. Uh, have you discussed whether G code is CUI and how can you store it on a computer or on a machine that d- can't have a two factor authentication or can't encrypt at rest because the oh, controllers God. just can't have that. They don't do that. We're, we're okay. You hit you. That's probably the toughest question I've ever had thrown at me, by the way, uh, which for cybersecurity, uh, we have not, um, uh, figured that out completely yet but what we have figured out is we have figured out the dual factor for our machinists to go in and out Mm -hmm. so with all the computers at every workstation we're kind of unique so it's like they have to have a chip so everyone has a chip there's a little thing that they have to put it in a little usb they have to log in and using you yeah yeah so we have to use something that they're assigned and we have to keep records of all that if they come and go and all that. But it's essential for us to know who's logged in on that machine. Um, From a GNM code perspective, I think we're going to end up having to encrypt it at some point. I'm just not sure how that's going to get done. Uh, It's 
because when you think about GNM code, uh, and I'm seeing all these fun little quippy shirts that the guys were in the shops. I don't know where they're getting them from, but it says there's no place like G28X0Y0Z0. Yeah. And I'm like, that's, that's oh, cute. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, that's, that's cute. And then there's some other ones I'm not even going to mention about with tapping cycles right now, if you don't catch my point. But um, <laughs> I'm like, guys, come on, man. And they're like, well, Nate, you could read it. That No one else knows what it means. I'm like, this is true. This is very true. <laughs> so, uh, but it's just fun. And, and, and it's like, well, you can figure out essentially with that code, you could figure out how to, how to make a part. Cause you can then backwards and extract and go, where's sure. the path going? And that's not good because we have to make sure that we're deterrent against some of the threats over overseas that we have right now. It's unfortunate. There's just so many bad things going on in the dang world, but yeah. you know, um, we, we've got to figure that out. I do not have a solution, but you've got me uh, wanting well, to go get one. Yeah, I am super curious. I've never heard an opinion from like a true expert, like a C3PAO or yeah. like what is, how are they going to control G-code? What do they classify it as? How, how do you do it? Because the machines just can't, you know, the machines themselves, they can't do that. No, they don't, right. There's no, there's no encryption on your, on your Mori, you know. No. control or no Mitsubishi control there's so, nothing anyway uh, that's definitely a rabbit hole um yeah i was gonna say we could probably spend an hour on that yeah yeah so as we kind of wrap up here i want to ask you two main things you know what do you feel like that you have done there at genuine that has been the biggest impact uh in whatever how you want to quantify impact and then what should other, what should shops be doing today to ensure their success, you know, for years to come? Well, those are two heavy questions. I think for, I don't really like talking about myself, but I'm getting better at it. I, I think for, for me, if, when I look back, I'm really pleased with the amount of changes that have occurred. And I mean that because this is going to sound bad, but, but if you, if you painted a picture of um, a lot of Muda, in every department, that's what we had a lot of waste everywhere. Yeah. Um, it was humbling for me and for my ego to have to roll my sleeves up and just dive in and go right into the mud and the muck. Um, and I, I know that my fingerprints are on a lot of places, but I'm, I'm happy to, to start empowering folks and backing out of their way and letting them feel the success that they deserve to feel. Um, I, I, I don't have one thing. And, and it's just because there's so many things and it's not done. It's never done in my mind either. It's always, I can always improve that. I can always make that quicker. I can always make that something stronger. It doesn't matter. Just That's just how I think, which can be really irritating and annoying too, because it's probably, probably good. And it's the gold standards. It's just me thinking, well, what if we did it different? What if someone else does it this way? And I would have to say, it's just a, a mixture of um, really looking back and it happened a few months ago. I remember uh, calling my wife on the way home and it, we were having a conversation about um, some great news on, on a program that we were being awarded. And this, it was just a really good day. And, and it was one of those like, wow, we, we won this contract. We won that. And, uh, and the, the customers have been showing up a lot and all of them have left here very complimentary of the people um, of the facilities and I, I answer that real poorly when they tell me that. And I says, well, I think we could do better. But I, I've learned to answer that with, I'm going to take your compliment, but I just want you to know that we're going to continuously improve it. Mm -hmm. And so 
uh, it's just so nice to hear our customers customer and sometimes their customer even mm-hmm. on site saying you know we we want you to keep doing and serving serving us or serving this entity for us on our behalf so i've had rolls royce in ge in pratt whitney in gulfstream in boeing in mm-hmm. um when you hear from these folks it's like wow that's that's absolutely that's, that's absolutely is. amazing um yeah. And her ears must be burning because my wife's calling her. <laughs> but uh, uh, what do I think every shop should be doing? Yeah. Um, what was the exact question? So I make Just sure to I ensure their success into the future. Listen to your people. When you need to, you have to check your armor at the door. And sometimes you have to tell your some some people that may be on your team they need to have a little bit of thicker skin sometimes when we're talking about things that have to happen for the customer. Um, but really it's how are we going to answer the call to help with the many products that need to get built? Um, it, it's going to come down to skill set and us actually having to roll our own sleeves up and figure out how we're going to train and invest. And I don't want to call it a drain on the business because it looks like it is on a on a balance sheet, but, or a cost sheet, but mm-hmm. when you get them going, you, you're, you're going to flourish. And I look at it from a, I guess maybe more of a, a macro view, but uh, we, we've got to figure out how we're going to, how we're going to support each other. I don't think that we need to fight each other either. I think that we have to realize that you are my brother across the street. If you're a private business owner or even on my private equity, I'm not your enemy. Mm-hmm. We're arguing over the same parts and we're, we're, our our enemy unfortunately sometimes are the corporations we're serving and we got to get them to realize we need more money we need to be profitable our folks need more money and that's going to come with the onshoring effort it's going to come with i think uh all money back into the organization where you're investing back into the people and into the processes that you have whether that's buying a brand new uh, five axes, or maybe you're out buying a turn mill or a mill turn, whatever that is. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that it's a combination of, sorry, I didn't have a very pointed answer for you, That's Paul, okay. but, but I, I just think there's so many and, and you could tell, I think way too much sometimes. And I, I, I've been thinking a lot about what I need to do. Cause I feel lazy. I feel like I'm not doing a good enough job. Um, and I know why I'm distracted with the problems that we have to solve. But if we don't start putting strategies together collectively with the states or the local municipalities or even at a federal level, we've got to get the folks funneling into trade schools or allowing them to use it as partial credit for high school, if not full credit. And we've also got to, they're going to learn, I think, a lot more doing that. They're not learning a lot with grammar. And I mean, it's good to understand, it's great to be articulate, but it's not, it's not something that's that everyone needs and not everyone wants to go to college either. And mm-hmm. how do we get these schools bolstered up even, even at a, I'd love to love to see them at a, this is an ASU campus, you know, mm-hmm. in every state. And, and that to me is really going to solidify what we need to do as a nation, um, as patriots. And it's really supposed to strengthen, in my opinion, the whole industry, which is an amazing industry. And I think that we have gotten s- too complacent with convenience and technology and it's removed some of the creativity and it's removed some of the folks from their interest of wanting to do it. And I'll just let you know right now, you can make six figures consistently 
machining parts or managing a machine shop or buying parts for a machine shop or just fill in the blank. There's a lot that you can do. You could have a lucrative and you can not only have lucrative, but you could also have a dream that's going to last for 40 years and you can retire. That's just my take. I love take. it. I love it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think all that is just, it underscores the importance, you know, from the very minutia level of, you know, a work cell and how you're efficiently pushing product through that machine all the way through up to the team, to the company, and then the industry problems we need to solve, you know, with onshoring and having everyone yeah. raise, raise the bar in their own companies, um, in our education system, in our policy. Uh, it's all this super interconnected, virtuous cycle that hopefully, you know, people like you are, are helping to to make better. So yeah, thanks for sharing everything today with us. I appreciate you. Uh, and I'm also very humbled, but thank you so much. Uh, uh, on behalf of, I'm not a representative of the industry, I guess I am a little bit, but it, what you're doing and what a lot of other folks are doing online, please keep doing it. You're creating an awareness that is going to last for many, many decades. And it's going to inspire many, many young men and women. And, you know, I'm humbled just to be a part of the process with you. So thank you. Well, I know people are going to love this episode. I appreciate it. I think we may have set a record for length. So yay to that. Um, <laughs> and, and I could, I feel like we could have gone another hour. There's so much good stuff to dig into. I, um, I'm so, so loquacious. So, so maybe there's, <laughs> maybe, no, that was not a, that was not a critique. Um, but uh, maybe there's a, a second one in the future as well. So absolutely. Nate, yeah. Thank you so much for everything today. And uh, yeah, appreciate everything you shared and uh, see you around at a trade show or something else soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. Paul, thank you very much. All right. Cheers, man. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the machine shop mastery podcast. We hope you learned something that inspires you on your journey. You can find more episodes and information over on our website, MachineShopMastery.com. There, you can also apply or nominate someone to be a guest on the show. We'll see you on the next episode. Until then, keep those spindles turning. <laughs>